to turn over to the uh, fourth chapter of Philippians this morning. In uh, uh, Philippians chapter 4, we're kind of closing up the book of Philippians. We've been in it for a while, and I don't know where we're going next yet, but uh, working on some things. Um, but it's great to come together and open up God's Word, and uh, knowing that this is His truth. That I don't have to stand up here and make something up. It's right here, and we all have it. <laughs> um, I just praise God for that. I grew up in a, in a church where the truth of God's Word was entrusted to one person. And that person was responsible to tell you what it meant because it was in uh, all sorts of different languages and you could never possibly understand it. So that's basically how I grew up. And so I was very unexposed to the Word of God until I actually got saved when I was 18, 19. And, and I'll never forget... After I got saved, I thought, I've got to read the Bible. So I started in Genesis, and you know, I got to the names, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat. I thought, this is impossible. I can't pronounce these names. There's got to, but I thought, in my thinking, you have to start at the beginning of the book and work your way through. You could never just jump over here and see what the New Testament's about. You have to read the whole thing. And it wasn't until somebody said, you know, there's some books over here on this side of the, <laughs> of the book that uh, will help you a little more and uh, get you over that hump. And uh, uh, I was thankful for that. But it's good to be here this morning, and, and um, you know, as we've been working through this series on contentment, uh, it seems like God shows us more and more every day how uncontent or discontent we are. And um, we look just in way of review at verse, we've been looking at verses 10 through 19, and in verse 10 we found out that contentment begins uh, basically with confidence in a, in a God who's sovereign, who can provide for you. And that's what... Um, Paul was telling the, the Philippians there. Um, in other words, if you believe that the God is sovereignly ordering your life, the details of your life, that leads to contentment. Um, anything else would be questioning God. And then we went on to verse 11 and we noticed that also being content, you have to be satisfied with a little. And he says, there not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned whatever state I'm in. He goes on. And uh, uh, Paul was basically in a situation where he had very little. But he was content with that. And the third point we looked at in verse 12 was that true contentment can only come if we're independent from our circumstances. If you're living your life according to your circumstances and living under your circumstances, um, you know, how many times you hear people say, how are you doing today? Well, okay, you know, considering the circumstances. And it's like, oh boy, you know. Um, we're called to live independent of our circumstances. Now that doesn't mean just, you know, be, uh, um, you know, dumb and happy and just uh, whatever, you know, but it has the idea that, you know what, you're not a victim of your circumstances. What happens in your life happens for a purpose. It happens for a reason. As hard as those things may be, um, we, can be we can be comfortable, we can be satisfied, we can be at peace and content when we realize that, you know what, our relationship with Christ, our relationship with God is always rises above these mundane things that we're, we're dealing with down here. And last week, the fourth principle we looked at, the fourth block of this, this foundation we're trying to build for contentment, was basically that we're sustained through divine power. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that. Um, can you imagine if you had to live this life, this Christian life, not just life, but a Christian life, on your own, without God's power? I mean, I don't know about you, beloved, but I, I have God's power. I have the Holy Spirit 
you know, living within me, and I still fail. <laughs> Can you imagine not having that power? Not having that ability to cry out to a God and for Him to intercede and to give you the strength you need to, to move on to the next trial that waits around the bend? Um, and, and that's what Paul says there in verse 13. That's the idea. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he's talking a lot about physical things there. He's, he's talking about spiritual things. Or he's talking about things that, that basically can't happen when you're at the end of your resource. He's talking about when you're totally drained emotionally, physically, spiritually. And there's nothing left inside you. And you don't think you can walk another step. He's talking at that point, that's when you have to realize, you know what? Even though I don't feel like taking another step, even though I don't feel like moving on to the next situation in my life, because this one's not even done yet, God will strengthen you. Christ will strengthen you. Because it's Him who strengthens us. And we looked in, in Galatians how Paul said, that it's, I don't live this life, it's not me, but it's Christ who lives it through me. See, and that's the key to any success in your spiritual life. To realize, you know what, it's not about you. It's about you giving it up to Christ. It's about you yielding yourself to a sovereign God on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment, second-by-second basis. In the instant we begin to um, not do that, what happens? Our flesh just takes over. We get in the flesh and get an attitude. We get this, we get that, whatever it might be. You know, and it's 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 key to I think spiritual maturity to be in those situations that are that are stressful, and yet to still be able to maintain some form of of spirituality. That's hard to do. It's hard to do for me, I should say. I don't, maybe maybe it's not hard for all you, but you know, when I'm in a stressful situation, I'm a lot more prone to give over to the flesh, more prone to have an attitude with somebody, more prone to just you know, check out and, you know, whatever, do whatever. And, and that's not, it's not right, it's not good, but, you know, I'm just being honest with you this morning. When we're under that pressure cooker of life, sometimes, you know what, we just give up. And we have to realize that, you know what, we can be strengthened by God's Spirit to, to walk through those things. And we don't have to fear what the outcome may be, because God is in control, we're not. Well, verses 14 to 19 kind of talk about the fifth thing, the fifth building block of this contentment that we're looking at. And uh, let me just read that for you. He says, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you alone, you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I speak, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things that you sent me, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. The fifth point here in our little wall of foundation of, of building a foundation of contentment is being preoccupied with the well-being of others. Um, Paul says there, you know what, I've learned to be content. He says it over and over again. It doesn't, you don't just wake up one day and say, oh, now I'm, I'm living a content life. It, it, it comes by trial and error. It comes through learning something. Um, and, and this man obviously 
learned it. But you know what? There's one thing that's very clear in Scripture. If you live your life for yourself, by yourself, you'll never be content, ever. Because yourself can never be uh, pleased to the point of contentment. See, contentment begins, I think, with the reality that when you have no concern about how it is with you, but you're only concerned with the, the welfare of others, all of a sudden, then there's, there's a contentment there. Um, then you can be content in your own situation. But we're not like that, are we? We're always concerned about who? Number one. We're always concerned about me, myself, and I. Um, that's just the way it is. And that is part of the curse. That's part of what we deal with on a daily basis. We all deal with that. And we want to force everybody into the mold that we think they need to be forced into. We want all the circumstances to line up just the way we want them to line up. Um, you know, we want uh, our husband or our wife to be exactly the way we pictured in our mind the way they would be. Uh, we want our children to, you know, like ducks in a row, like boom, 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 you know, this is the way it is. Well, you know what, that's not life. That's not real. And even to have that expectation causes discontentment. Um, We'd like everything to, to, in our world to fall into the perfect little niche that we think it should be in, and, and therefore, you know, our lives would just be perfect. You'll never know contentment. You'll never understand true contentment until you get off this soapbox of trying to design our own agenda in life. We can't do it. We can try. But once you lose yourself in the idea that, you know, I'm going to be a little more concerned about other people than myself, um, then all of a sudden contentment settles in. Uh, you know, Paul prayed this for the Philippians in, in chapter 1. You remember in verse 9, he prayed for them that their love would abound more and more. What's that? Does he mean just abound within themselves? No, he means abound, overflowing, to touch out, reach out and touch those around them. Chapter 2 gets even more specific in verse 3, and he says, Don't do anything, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, that, that is so key in life. But it's the hardest thing to master. You never master it. It's something that you know, selfishness just rears its ugly head in our lives over and over and over again. And that attitude of Christ that we read about this morning, he didn't, in, in Isaiah, he didn't look out for his own interests, did he? No, he looked out for the interests of us. Uh, you know, if he would have looked out for his own interests, I don't think he would have came down here. I don't think he would have said, okay, Father, yeah, I'll go down and put on a, a body like the rest of those humans down there and, and, you know, live this life and die for these people that most of them probably won't even care. I'll do that. No, if he was watching out for number one, he would never do that. But he wasn't. He was looking out for a need, for a Savior, and he was it. And he willingly embraced that. Um, he left heaven to meet our need. It's, it's hard to, uh, I guess, understand that in our lives. Um, the idea that God would leave a place like heaven, Christ would leave a place like heaven and come down here and do everything that he did for us um, just because he loved us. That's amazing to me. That'd be like somebody who retires and moves to Hawaii and 
and says, ah, this is the life, you know, living in the castle on the hill, and boy, it's just wonderful. Not a care in the world. And they give it all up. And they go work in the slums in New York City with poor homeless children who need to hear about a savior. That would be a hard decision to make. <laughs> but you know what? I think that sometimes God wants us to look for the interests of others, the well-being of others, more than ourselves. And you say, well, you know, I'll never retire in Hawaii in a castle on a hill, so that doesn't apply to me. Well, let's make it a little more personal. You know, how about when, <laughs> you know, you see your neighbor across the street dealing with something. I was working on a house yesterday in the, the uh, I didn't tell you this, Robert, but I, I couldn't get the garage door to go down on this house. I was cleaning and... Um, this neighbor guy walked by and he asked about the people that used to live in the house. Oh, they were wonderful people. And then the, somebody just came in and took everything away. What happened to him? I said, I have the slightest idea, sir, but would you help me get this garage door down? And so we talked a little bit and, and uh, you know, it wasn't a big deal. We figured it out and went right down. But, you know, he was willing to stop and, 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 and help me in that. And sometimes, you know, we have neighbors all around us, sometimes on, on all four sides of us. You know, the best way to reach out to somebody may not be to go over and say, hey, you need help cutting your lawn. But sometimes, you know, in all honesty, it's to go ask for help. People are a lot more willing to help you than to, to uh, allow them to, to allow you to help them. And so, you know, that's just a way of, of reaching out to those around us. But sometimes we get so busy, you know, and manicuring our lawns and making everything look so nice and, and all that thing that we forget about, hey, you know, there's a neighbor on the other side of the fence. What's his name? Do they know Christ? Do they not know Christ? Where are they at spiritually? How can we reach out to them? Um, you know, we need to be focused, preoccupied with the well-being of others. Now, you notice there in verse 14, he starts off with that word, at least in my translation, it says, nevertheless, it says, nevertheless, you have done uh, well that you shared in my distress. In my distress. Now, this is kind of a transition in this text, and it's a very important one, because if you, if you stop and you think about where we've been in this text, remember, Paul's a prisoner. Okay, he's chained to a, a Roman guard, probably incarcerated in some kind of apartment or something in Rome. He's in a very physically challenging, difficult situation, and he probably has a, a meager subsistence to live on, so he has needs. We don't know what all the physical needs were. He doesn't share those with us, but probably basic needs, food, water, you know, basic things. Um, and in the middle of that need, what happens? The Philippian church hears that Paul's in need. They hear that, you know what, he's, he's having a need that's not being met. And this Philippian church, out of love, they send one of their own, Epaphroditus, to Paul with supplies that he could probably use. Maybe food, clothing, perhaps, money, whatever. They sent something with Epaphroditus as a gift for Paul. And Epaphroditus comes all the way to Rome from Philippi to deliver this to Paul. And it's obviously a generous gift. It's not, you know, here's a package of crackers, Paul. You know, it's a generous gift. It's a sacrificial gift, just based on the text. And you have to understand the Philippians were not a well-to-do church. They were a poor church. Over and over again, they were basically poor. We see that in Scripture. 
They were a church in Macedonia. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul comments on the poverty of these churches in Macedonia. Extreme poverty. So they were poor people. They, they didn't have a whole lot. And so what they sent, they sent as a sacrifice, probably of their own sustenance, to the Apostle Paul because they heard of his need. And so, picture this. He's in this some kind of prison apartment, whatever, chained to this guard. He's got a need. He, Epaphroditus comes. He receives this gift from Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus actually stayed and ministered to him. And now, Epaphroditus, it's time to go back to the Philippians. So, Paul writes him this letter. And so, they're going to read things in this letter that we've gone through already like this in verse 11. I don't have any wants. I've learned to be content. This is what Paul is writing back to the Philippians. In verse 12, they're going to read this. I know how to get along with a humble means, and I know how, to long, I know how the secret of going hungry and suffering need. They're going to read like verse 13 says, that he can endure anything because he has the strength of the Spirit with him. And you know what? If I was the Philippians, I would conclude at this point in the letter, you know what? This guy didn't need much of our help. I mean, basically up to this point, he's saying, hey, I'm doing fine. <laughs> and here they are sacrificially giving. And they probably thought, man, we must have made a terrible mistake. It'd be like us taking up love offerings for a month for a missionary somewhere. And then, you know, only to hear that, you know, that the missionaries, you know, we're sacrificing to give to this missionary because we think there's a need. And the missionary sends back and says, hey, yeah, you know, we just bought three new cars and we're living in a new house and blah, blah, blah. God's just blessing us. And we're thinking, why did we send the money? We could have sent it to somebody else who really had need. And that's what they're probably feeling at this point in the letter. They made this major sacrifice to send this gift to Paul and he writes back, I didn't need it. I didn't want it. God would have provided it anyway. You know, I'm, I'm able to do with a little. I can live above my circumstances, below my circumstances. I'm sustained by the power of Christ. So, you know, I don't need this. That's what you would have concluded if it would have ended right here at verse 13. It would have been almost a rude thank you note. Thanks, but no thanks. And so he says in verse 14, and this is where the transition comes in, nevertheless, in other words, in spite of the fact that I'm content, Philippians, in spite of the fact that I'm strengthened by Christ, in spite of the fact that I trust in the providence of God, in spite of the fact that I live above my circumstances, not under my circumstances, look at what he says. You have done well that you shared in my distress. You have done well. You have done a noble thing. That's the idea. You did something that was beautiful in the character area. Something that was good in the noble sense. You did it. You did a right thing. You did a good thing. You did a lovely thing. You did a beautiful thing for me. That's his what he wants to share with them. Well, what is it? And he goes on. He says, in sharing with me in my affliction. They were able to share with Paul in his pain, is the idea, in his pressure, in his tribulation, in his trouble. And if you stop and you think about the situation he finds himself in, it wasn't some imaginary stress that he was facing. It was a very real, difficult situation. 
some of us we find ourselves in situations that are difficult somebody else may not understand that you know I know sometimes as a chaplain or even as a pastor you called out to you know sometimes just a, a bad situation I've always learned the worst thing that you could ever say in that situation I know how you feel I have no idea how they feel But we have to be able to somehow associate with their affliction, with their pain, with their pressure. That's what the Philippians were able to do. We have to at least try to understand it. And what Paul is saying is you did a noble thing when you shared with me, when you partnered with me, when you joined in my partnership in the gospel. Because they gave generously, these people. Look at verse 15. He says, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me. Not one. Concerning giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Now this is going back ten years, remember. This wasn't like yesterday. This is ten years ago. See, and this is why Paul is able to trust and, and be confident in, in a God who provides for him. He hasn't heard from the Philippians for 10 years. And so he's reminded them, hey, I remember back when, when you first partnered with me. He's not reading them the right act because there's been a gap of 10 years. He uses that and he says, hey, you know what? God didn't provide you uh, the opportunity to share with me during those 10 years. He wasn't mad at them. He just realized, you know what, God's going to provide. And for those 10 years, he provided, it just wasn't through you. Because you didn't have the opportunity. So he takes him back 10 years in verse 15. He says, hey, from the very beginning, you were there. It's been 10 years since he left their area. And he's looking back and he's saying, you know what? Not only did you do well to share with me in this recent gift that Epaphroditus just brought me, Thank you very much. But I want you to remember that 10 years ago, when I first began to preach the gospel in Philippi, and the church was started, moved on to Thessalonica and Berea and all, you were right there beside me. You poor little church. You sacrificed. You gave to the ministry of the gospel. And what he's saying is, I have not forgotten how generous of people you are. That's what he wants them to understand. He never wants them to for forget how they blessed him in the past. And implied back in verse 10 is the fact that they would have done it a lot more often if they had the opportunity. But they didn't have the opportunity. God didn't allow for the opportunity. And this church was not a wealthy church. It was a poor church. Paul even said in 2 Corinthians 11, I had to rob the churches of Macedonia to support me to minister to you. In other words, he's saying these poor little churches over here are supporting my work here in Corinth. Because you can't support me. And he felt bad about that. 
But this, this term here is interesting that he uses. In verse 15, when he says, No church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you alone. The matter of giving and receiving. Um, it's a very interesting, they're all business terms. Those of you who have a background in business. The word matter, it can be translated account. The, the idea of giving and receiving are, are literal terms for giving and receiving. They can be used to express banking, expenditures, receipts, those kind of things. And what he's saying is, you know what, I haven't lost track of how you faithfully gave to me in the past. And I want to thank you for the gift that you're giving now. Verse 17, Paul goes on and you say, well, why is he so joyful about this whole thing? He seems kind of upbeat about this. Look at verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift. Remember, they gave sacrificially, and up to the, verse 13, he's telling them, that basically, I don't need it. And then all of a sudden, in verse 14, he says, but I'm thankful for the gift. And in verse 17, he says, I'm not seeking a gift from you, but I seek, look at this, the fruit that abounds to your account. Talk about being concerned for the well-being of others. He's not seeking a gift from the Philippian church. He wasn't over there saying, I wish they'd send me some bread or something. No. He wasn't excited because they gave him a basket of goodies. He was excited because, you know what? You're going to be blessed because you gave to the ministry of the gospel. That's what he was excited about. That's what he wanted them to understand. See, it isn't that he, he wanted to the, the material benefit in his account. That's not the idea. The idea is, is that he realized, you know what, as you give to the work of the ministry, you're benefiting your own account. That's a very biblical foundation in Scripture. And that's how Paul lived. See, he's not, he's not saying this, you did well to give me all that you gave me because, uh, you know, uh, I got all this stuff and it just makes me so happy. Now all my needs are met and I'm just, you know, comfortable and I live fine. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm glad you gave, not because I wanted the gift. It wasn't about the gift. It was about you getting credit on your spiritual account. And that's really what he's been praying for. Chapter 1, verse 9, that your love would abound more and more. Chapter 2, that they'd have an attitude of looking out for the interests of others, not for their own interests, considering others more important than themselves. And when he says there, I want that kind of fruit, that, that profit that goes to your account, Jesus had a, a word for that. He called it what? Treasure, right? Where? In heaven. Treasure in heaven. Laying up treasure in heaven. It goes to your spiritual account. And here's a man, Paul, who was content because he wasn't concerned with consuming. He wasn't concerned with what he got. He was deeply concerned with the spiritual blessings that came to others 
even as a result of their giving. Ask yourself this question. Do you rejoice more in the blessing that comes to others than you do in, in that which comes to you? Are you content to be without as long as someone else is blessed? See, we don't live in that kind of society. <laughs> we don't think that way a lot of times. We think, well, yeah, you know, if the home base is strong, then surely I'll give. But if the home base is poor, you can't expect me to give. Because, you know, we don't, we, who's going to sustain us? I mean, we have children to feed, we have this. That's how we think. We all think that way. And what Paul is bringing up here, he's bringing up really a, a theology of giving. I'm just going to touch on this a little bit. We're going to actually go into this more next week. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 11. You know, I want to say this just up front. We're not a church who... There are some churches that, that harp on giving and harp on money. We're, we're not that way. We're just not. And I just want to tell you, I really struggled with the idea of even talking about giving and all this stuff. Just because people immediately think, oh, well, they're begging for money. That's, that's not it. Trust me. Everything you see around us on this property, it's all paid for. God has blessed this church abundantly. You know, and it's by the grace of God that, that we can sit here today and say that. But, so it's, it's not out of the, the, the need that this generates, but the text demands that we talk about this. And in Proverbs 11, look at verse 24 and 25. says, there's one who scatters yet increases more, and there's one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. Look at verse 25. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. See, there's a principle in Scripture, and we need to grab a hold of this. As you give away your resources, what happens? you get an increase. Now, I'm not talking about the name it and claim it, you know, sow your seed of faith here. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the biblical principle of giving. And throughout Scripture, over and over, you see it. And we're going to be going into this in the coming weeks. Scripture points out, you know what, if you hoard, if you're the kind of person who just hoards everything, never give anything away, you know what, you'll have nothing. It's a scriptural principle. He's picturing a, a farmer. You know what a farmer does? A farmer what? Sows seed. Takes his money and he goes down to the seed store and he buys the seed. He spends his entire amount of the money on the seed. That's why farming is such a risk. It's not like there's a backup plan. You understand that? I mean, you know, that's why it was so devastating at times in our history when, when crops, whole, whole crops were wiped out. 
Today we think, oh, why didn't they just go to the store and buy some? It didn't work that way. You made your living on, and, and you, you, you relied on the sustenance that grew in your fields. And when it didn't rain, it was a pretty serious thing. They didn't just go out and turn the sprinklers on. Okay, it was a whole different world. And so the farmer would go out and buy the seed, spend the entire amount of money on the seed. And he takes the risk, puts the seed, and he throws it into the ground. And the one who does that, he throws it away, scatters it. That's what this verse is saying. He'll increase all the more. And verse 25 says, the generous man will be prosperous. That's the application of verse 24. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. See, that's a promise from God, from our God, that God does not remain in debt to anyone. Proverbs 19.17 says this, He who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. The Lord will repay him. In Luke 6.38, familiar verse, Jesus says, Give and it will be given to you. Give and it will be given to you. 2 Corinthians 9.6, Apostle Paul wrote, Sow sparingly and you're going to reap sparingly. Sow bountifully and you will reap bountifully. In other words, the principle throughout Scripture basically is this, that what you sacrificially give becomes treasure in heaven. And God in response to that will give in return. That's, that's, that's the principle. In 2 Corinthians, it's, it's very explicit. It says, The God who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is overflowing through many thanksgiving to God. All of this because of their liberous liberality and their contribution. And what he's saying in Philippians is, you know what? You guys gave sacrificially in a way that nobody else did. Not because you had a lot to give, but you gave sacrificially. That's, that's truly spiritual giving. That will be applied to our spiritual account. See, and that's where the Apostle Paul is. He's only concerned with his spiritual account. Look at verse 19. He says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches. Where? In glory by Christ Jesus. It's, it's, it's amazing to me that sometimes the idea of of our giving to the Lord and we're not just talking money we're talking time we're talking talent we're talking treasure you know those those three aspects I just want to take some weeks and look at that and, and just make sure just make sure we're doing it with the right motivation make sure that we're doing it in the right way and and you know I'm applying this to myself as well uh, and that's why it's 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 hard for me to teach on this subject because you know what it's it's a difficult thing for me. Me and finances just don't get along. Ask my wife, um, you know. Uh, and so, 
you know, it's just a, it's, it's a delicate situation for me. But I want us to understand what God's Word says about giving. So that when we, so that when we give, it's not the amount. It's not, but it's the attitude of the heart. I mean, you know, some people, I got 10% tied. That's what, that's what, you know what? We're going to find out in the coming weeks that, you know what? The, the whole tithe thing, I don't know. I mean, that may be going to be a beginning point. That may be a starting point, but it's definitely not an ending point. Because as we're going to look at that in the Old Testament, what that meant, they gave a lot more than that. Just to tell you, you know, maybe you want to take off vacation now, the next couple of weeks, you know, unless you fall under conviction or something. But, you know, and once again, I just want us to have the proper understanding of what it means to give to the work and the ministry of the Lord. Once again, not because we're seeking money or a gift. That's not, not the idea at all. But we want to biblically discern what is taught in Scripture and so that we can just embrace it and, and, and more fully understand God's will for us as a church, as an individual, as a family, as we give our resources to the work and the ministry of the Lord. So those, those five things there kind of... Um, stand out if you, if you think about it. Um, if, you, if you want to be content in life, uh, definitely those, those five things are, are so, so key. And I, I want to close with the idea that, you know what, God is so good that no gift given to God will ever make a Christian poor. You can never give of your resources to God and say, now we're poor because we gave all this to God. But he will not allow that to happen. I guarantee it. Um, and it's just a kind of an important principle that we understand. And so when it, it comes to contentment, rem remember these things, trusting in the providence of the sovereign God, first of all, that God will provide for your needs. He says he will. It's a promise. Learn to be content, satisfied with a little. Remember that contentment comes from being independent of your circumstances, being sustained by that indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, the divine power. And then also looking out for the spiritual blessing, well-being of others, and add to your own spiritual account by doing so. Somebody summed that up in five words. Faith, humility, submission, dependence, and unselfishness. That really makes a contented person if you think about it. Faith, humility, submission, dependence, and unselfishness. I think Paul was that kind of a person. He was definitely content. Let's close in a word of prayer and... We'll have our communion time together. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. And Lord, uh, thank You for these last couple weeks as we've looked at the subject of contentment. And, and Lord, um, we do pray that those five building blocks would be evidenced in our own lives, that we would be willing to embrace those. And, and Lord, as we look at the subject of giving and how that's biblically taught to us in principles in Scripture in the coming weeks, Lord. I pray that we would have open hearts to Your Word. I pray that we would just be thankful for the resources that You've given us. Lord, not only as a church, but as a people. Here we live in America. We live in such a bountiful nation. It's, it's, it's unreal. Um, Lord, I, I just pray that we would be 
thankful for all these blessings in our lives. Lord, we pray that as we prepare our hearts for communion time, Lord, we think of the ultimate gift that you gave your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that during this time, Lord, if there's anything in our hearts that we need to confess to you, if there's anything in our hearts that would not honor you, I pray that we would confess that to you and thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, this communion table is a, it's a special time for those who know Christ in a personal way, who've experienced his forgiveness. And it's meant to be for, for that family of God who knows Christ personally. And if, if there be anyone here this morning, Lord, who has yet to put their faith and trust in Christ and ask for the forgiveness of their sin, Lord, it's never too late to do that. Lord, even now, Lord, I pray that if you're convicting someone of their unbelief, I pray that they would cry out to you. Lord, that you would, they would cry out to you, just be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to turn from my sin and put my faith and trust in a Savior who I know loves me and cares for me and, and wants to forgive me. You make that your prayer this morning. He'll answer that prayer. And yet, if we go through this time and you just don't sense God leading you to do that, that's fine. But we also pray that you would... would just pass the elements by, the bread and the, the, the juice as it goes by. Because if you don't know Christ personally, it really doesn't mean anything to you. And nobody's going to think any less of you. But this is meant for those who have trusted and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. And we just want to honor that. And Father, we just thank you for our time this morning. We pray that you would just continue to bless our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.